There is a disturbing new trend making waves in the world of online content creation. Corporate blogs, mom-and-pop business websites, podcasts, even stuff that you posted years ago to your personal website or social media. It's now, at all times, being examined, sifted through, and screened by artificial intelligence bots probing for an opening, a weakness, a copyright violation. Now we are seeing these new technologies that have been implemented going back into blog archives and claiming copyright violations. And you're kind of thinking to yourself, like, I don't even remember when I did that. Like, I don't even know where that came from. Like, is that even my blog? And it's actually pretty common. Caroline Fox is an attorney in Virginia who represents a number of photographers, copywriters, and other online creators. And she says a growing number of her clients have now received threatening letters and emails from a company called PickRights. In a practice that's become known as copyright trolling, these letters allege a copyright violation on the recipient's website and demand payment of hundreds or even thousands of dollars to settle the claim, threatening costly litigation if the recipient does not swiftly comply. While it would be easy to mistake these letters for a scam, here's the kicker. PickRights actually represents the interests of some of the largest photo copyright holders in the world, like the Associated Press and the AFP. So while they may have the legal right to send those letters, marketing technologist Pierre-Nicolas Schwab says that doesn't make their practices and tactics ethical. They are just after easy money. In this episode, Pierre-Nicolas shares the tale of his entanglement with pick rights, and together with Caroline Fox, we explore just how these operations work, what the implications are, and how to protect yourself. Because if you've ever posted a picture online that you didn't take yourself, you could soon be getting one of these letters claiming that you owe money to copyright trolls. I did. I'm Dusty Weiss from PodCamp Media. This is Lead Balloon, a podcast about compelling tales from the world of PR marketing and branding told by the well-meaning communications professionals who lived them. Thanks for tuning in. We are back for season four of Light Balloon, where we share monthly tales from the world of strategic communication that are not only entertaining, I hope, but also offer an opportunity for public relations and marketing professionals to learn valuable lessons from folks who have been there and done that. So please take a moment to follow this show in your favorite podcast app or click the link in the episode description to subscribe to PodCamp's email newsletter. We are opening the season with a little bit of a PSA this month, because I'll admit, I had never heard about copyright trolling until I received a letter from one of these operations, alleging that I had violated a copyright. And one only needs to peruse the internet to hear hundreds of stories from small, scared, indie content creators who have received these letters. People who thought that they were licensing a stock photo, only discovered that the license that they were sold wasn't valid. People who grabbed a photo off of Twitter for their blog, only to discover that it was taken by an AP photographer. People writing a newsletter for a nonprofit who didn't realize that copyright even applied to them. It turns out a whole lot of people at some point have innocently cribbed a photo off Google images that they didn't have rights to. And the advent of copyright trolling technology means that every one of them could now be subjected to threatening demands for payment. Such was the case with Pierre-Nicolas Schwab, a Belgium-based marketer, technologist, and business consultant, and the founder of the market research firm Into the Minds. I remember very vividly the moment I got that email, and I had a very bad day because I didn't know what was actually happening, and I thought it was a scam at first, until I browsed the internet looking for um, additional information on um, 
company behind that email that I was getting. And I realized that it was true. So there was a legit base for what they did. And I actually did something wrong. It was not on purpose. I've been creating content for uh, 15 years, always trying to uh, respect other people and uh, did a mistake. And it cost a few hundred bucks, actually. What specifically happened to you? This was all in relation to a blog post that you put up and a piece of art that you put on your blog? Exactly. I don't remember the exact uh, topic that I was dealing with. I think it had to do with art. And I found a picture that I thought could be used. So I probably credited the AFP. So there was no intention on my side to steal the work of someone else. I mistakenly thought that that image was to be used. And because I wanted to respect the right of the AFP, I credited the AFP for the image and also the photographer. And that image got detected a few weeks later by PicRights. According to documentation on their own website, when PicRights automated bots detect one of its client's images on a website, it reports each hit back to the client in question. In Pierre Nicholas's case, they would have pinged someone at the AFP, the Agence France Presse, one of the oldest newswire services in the world. Clients are supposed to sort out which uses of the image were licensed and then direct pick rights to pursue the claims for uses that were unlicensed. When they've received the green light to chase a claim, pick rights sends an email or a letter to the owner or publisher of a website in which they allege the misuse, threaten to escalate the matter to a law firm, and try to strong arm the recipient into settling the claim through payment on an online portal. This may come as a shock to you if you've been publishing stuff on the internet for as long as Nicholas and I have. After all, the whole methodology behind creating a meme is to grab someone else's photo and add some snarky commentary over it. And not that we haven't been warned against it all along, but in the heyday of blogging 10 to 15 years ago, it was pretty common practice to post a photo on your blog and just link back to the photographer. If they didn't like it, they'd reach out to you and ask you to take it down. Or in worst case scenarios, you could expect a cease and desist letter. Now, certainly bloggers who claimed someone else's work as their own or sold it on a t-shirt, they might be expected to pony up a share of the proceeds. But this practice of sending a demand for payment for incidental or accidental use, this is new. For years, that wasn't the way that it worked. Even if, Pierre Nicholas says, copyright laws haven't really changed all that much in that time. The legal base has always been there. Maybe 15 years ago, it was not enforced the same way it is today because there were no algorithms or there were no cheap way to do that at scale. But the law hasn't changed. I mean, in terms of copywriting, it's been the same for decades. And it's just that people were probably not as much aware 15 years ago as they are uh, today. Right. The laws were there. They were just basically unenforceable. Well, it was much more difficult to enforce them at scale because that's exactly what Peak Rights does to date and other copyright rights, by the way. And obviously that wasn't possible 15 years ago because there was no uh, CPUs that could do that at scale. So cloud computing was not there and AI algorithms weren't available at that time. Now, you call this practice copyright trolling in a blog post that you've done that has become something of an authority on this on the internet. Congratulations on that Google ranking. I've been very cautious when I wrote that article using the term copyright or because I didn't want to undergo another lawsuit or something like this. So I said, so-called 
copyright trolls. And uh, that's the term that has been coined for them in general. I'm just reusing the term. But they indeed have a mandate from a client to enforce their rights. But that's more the way they enforce the rights that make them trolls because they use a lack of knowledge of the people that they write to to try to, not to steal, because that's not uh, stealing, but to get money that most probably, if there was a litigation, wouldn't be due. That's what made them troll. So they are, you know, playing on fear, playing on creating stress. And I was in the same state at that time when I got that email. And that's what really make them troll. And they are coming and coming and coming again. It's kind of harassment. And that's not the extent of the shady business practices or deliberate negligence that have been alleged against pick rights and the companies like it. Some bearing monikers like image rights, copy track, copy pants, and pixie as just a few instances. But if you click over to the pick rights website, it's clear that being branded as copyright trolls bothers them. In a blog post dated July of 2022 and titled, Pick Rights is Not a Troll, Copyright Affects Everyone Including You, they defend their business practices, blaming intellectual property theft in the U.S. for $600 billion a year in economic damages and alleging that 2.1 billion images are shared online every day without license or permission. And I quote their blog, Over the years, we, like most in the industry, have been tarnished as, quote, copyright troll, trying to, quote, scam everyday people out of money. In reality, we work to secure compensation for our clients whose livelihood has been harmed by the unauthorized use of their work. Never mind that PickRights most often represents photo rights holders like the AP and the AFP, and not the photographers themselves. This is a refrain that I heard as well when I became entangled with one of these so-called copyright trolls. I'm not going to say which one or go into the details because reasons. It suffices to say that I think I have a very good case and I'm not going to go quietly. But when I got my letter in January, I called up the point of contact to give him what for over what I consider to be an arbitrary and punitive response to an alleged innocent mistake. Well, first of all, Dustin, they're not punishing anyone. They want to pay their photographers. And and here, we're going to call this guy on the phone George. Here, George tried to pronounce the name of this Eastern European photographer, which he was clearly only seeing for the first time as he opened this case file, and then he gave up and spelled it instead. S-K-Y, who is the photographer, um, they want to pay him for your use of their image. Alleged use. And that's how... Right. So, and that's how uh, make their money. They're they're a press organization, they're a press agency. Setting aside for a moment the absurdity of this guy arguing to me, a former journalist, how important it is for journalists to get paid, I wanted to see just how serious George and his organization were about this noble cause. So, I logged onto an image license marketplace and paid a substantial licensing fee for the image in question because, yes, I also want journalists and newswires to get paid. Then I set the proof of that license to George and his organization. Two days later, I received this response. Dear Dusty, Although you have purchased a license for your future use of our client's image, it is not a fee for your past use. This matter is not resolved. To fully resolve the matter, payment for the past use of the image is required. Color me shocked. They are just after 
easy money. And I cannot blame them for that. I mean, that's their business model, so we should respect it. I mean, that's the way they conduct business. But I think that search for easy money can also be seen in how they built the peak rights company. The really interesting thing is that where they are registered, it's in Switzerland and it's on, on the first floor of a pizzeria. Not exactly the sort of grand corporate headquarters that I would expect from a multinational corporation. Well, it's a multinational on paper because they have indeed subsidiaries in different countries. So in that sense, it's multinational. But they are indeed incorporated on the first floor of a pizzeria in a business center. So a little bit like, you know, you would go to Delaware and uh, you have those buildings in Delaware where you have uh, hundreds or thousands of companies registered. Well, now, here it's exactly the same as business center on the on the first uh, floor. It's kind of intricate, so I, I went through all the business registries in different countries, in Switzerland, in Germany, in Austria, in, in France, and so forth and so on, just to reconstruct the way that the different big rights subsidiaries are built together. And it all goes back to one family. So one man, his wife, and uh, the two children. Because nothing screams legitimacy like a corporate Russian doll of international shell corporations and interwoven corporate governance. Pierre Nicholas says he's done the research, and he's helpfully illustrated Pickwright's complicated international corporate structure on a blog post, which I will link to in the episode notes. Ultimately, the menacing emails, the threats to escalate to an expensive lawsuit, they're intended to get you to agree to pay that settlement fee to make it all go away. And though they pissed him off mightily, as a small business owner whose livelihood was on the line, settling is exactly what Pierre Nicholas ended up doing. I ended up paying 230 euros, something like this, and it was over. When you have a picture on your website for a longer period of time, you may end up with thousands of euros claimed by peak rights. So I quickly uh, took it away. I thought about what I could do. I called a friend who had experienced something similar. He has a very big website where he remixes images and videos from um, bigger brands. And he told me, well, you shouldn't have never paid that uh, amount of money uh, because they, they may come after you once again if there is something uh, to be found on your website. And he said, well, I get you know, requests of that kind every uh, single week and I just forget them. So it's just hard to live with that because there is always that feeling that you did something wrong, that, that something of a different magnitude could happen to you if you do not react, if you do not pay. Right. Instead of paying a 250 euro fine, they could come after you for much, much more. Yeah. So we should not use this, the term fine because fine comes from justice. So they are not entitled to give you a fine. They are just entitled to propose you a settlement to avoid a lawsuit, which most probably, and that's where it becomes tricky, they would, in Europe, most probably lose. But... The question is for someone who gets that email, who gets that request, does he or does she want to go through a lawsuit? Right. And potentially have to pay a lawyer thousands of dollars to make your argument for you in court when you have a settlement fee that appears to be much smaller dangled in front of you like that. You obviously chose to settle. Why, uh, why did you choose to settle? Because it was 230 bucks, first of all, because I was ignorant, second. But I should say now, with all the knowledge that I have accumulated after that, if that would happen again, I would gladly go to court just to make them lose. Because I'm now sure that I would most probably win. 
plus uh, I haven't heard of any lawsuit that they have started or even won. Now, there's no doubt that here in the States, the law might not be as generous for the common man as it is in Europe. But make no mistake, our next guest says that copyright trolling still seldom leads to successful lawsuits in America either. And Caroline Fox would know. She's an attorney with experience protecting clients from Pickwright's claims. And these letters that they're getting say, like, you are going to owe us this much money. It's $150,000 per infringement, blah, blah, blah. When really those remedies aren't available to the person that's claiming them. So we're going to talk about what courses of action are available to you if you get a claim letter from Pickwright's. What happens when Pickwright's escalates a case to its partner law firm? Some unethical practices, Caroline says, she's observed from these folks. And above all, how to protect yourself from ever running afoul of the pernicious copyright robots. And that is all coming up in a minute here on Lead Balloon. This is Lead Balloon, and I'm Dusty Weiss. We caught you using an unlicensed image on the internet, so pay us money or our clients will sue you. That's a basic gist of letters and emails that have gone out by the thousands over the last couple of years from so-called copyright trolling operations like PickRights and their affiliated law firms like Higby & Associates. Backed up by an unrelenting army of AI bots which scour the web for alleged copyright infringement, these companies mark a massive departure from the way that things have traditionally been done on the internet. But the law is, technically, on their side even for blogs that you may have posted and forgotten about more than 10 years ago. And you're kind of thinking to yourself, like, I don't even remember when I did that. Like, I don't even know where that came from. Like, is that even my blog? Like, what's going on here? And it's actually pretty common. It's been happening a lot. Caroline Fox is the principal attorney at CJ Fox Law in Richmond, Virginia. With an agency background in public relations and social media, she has, for the last nine years, worked as an attorney specializing in copyright, trademarks, and advertising media compliance. But she's also, more and more these days, hearing from clients who have received one of these claim letters from PickRights. People still call me absolutely panicked because they're just like, oh my gosh, what is happening? Why me? Why is this happening? I never thought it would happen to me. Now, this seems like as good a point as any to remind you that this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the rendering of legal or any other advice. Our guests' opinions are based on information they consider reliable, but PodCamp Media is in no position to warrant its completeness or accuracy and should not be relied upon as such. Please consult with a lawyer regarding your own individual circumstances, etc., etc. I would say I hear once every month or so that somebody's got a notification, whether it's a client or somebody a client knows. So usually I'll just tell them like, yeah, you should probably get in touch with a lawyer at least to evaluate that kind of thing. So we're, it's pretty common. I recently received one of these letters myself about an alleged copyright violation, and that process is playing out right now. But I've got to say, reading the letter, when you read it, it sounds pretty scary. It sounds pretty serious. How serious would you say the threat is to creators, though, really? So there's a couple layers to this, and this is where I get a little bit passionate about it. If there is a willful copyright violation for a pre-registered work or a work that had been registered before the infringement happened, it could be bad. Like it could be really bad. Those are those 
million dollar verdicts we hear about, like the Robin Thicke Pharrell kind of situation where those aren't great. But there's usually a couple different factors at play there. There is technically no such thing as innocent infringement. And we do say, you know, copyright infringement, it's kind of like a strict liability crime because the act of doing it is the taking of the image and reposting it, right? Under the law, at least. Under the law, at least. Yes. But mentally, you know, people don't go in, especially creators who really do typically have some respect for, I don't want to take this other person's stuff and pass it off as my own. I'm just like reposting it or using it or whatever. Even some people giving credit, you know, people think, oh, I'm going to give them credit. I'm going to link to their website. I'm going to say, I got it here. It's going to be fine. That doesn't mean anything. You have to have an actual copyright license or something in writing or approved from the creator for it to not be copyright infringement. The severity of it can often be bumped up into those numbers, that $150,000 per infringement figure that you see thrown around. I get upset because a lot of times that gets thrown around for works that were just registered and that, you know, your infringement was from back in 2010 when it was not registered. This is another confusing thing. When you make something, you immediately have a copyright in that work. However, according to SCOTUS, Supreme Court of the United States, as of 2019, I believe, if you want to sue on that copyright or enforce it with the courts, it has to be registered. So like, yeah, you have a copyright in it, but you can't actually enforce it unless it's registered. So you have somebody who infringes before you've registered it. In order to enforce it, you have to go back, register, and then you have lessened damages. So you can't claim as much money. And these letters that most of my clients or my colleagues' clients, because there's a bunch of us that kind of chit chat around, the ones that they're getting say like, you are going to owe us this much money. It's $150,000 per infringement, blah, blah, blah. When really those remedies aren't available to the person that's claiming them. And then sometimes too, we also have a statute of limitations problem because technically your statute of limitations, it's going to be shorter. These copyright notices that you're getting or that my clients are getting that are back from 2013, 2010, 2008. And you're sitting there and you're like, there's a huge statute of limitations problem. But there was one case out of California, which is a very heavily weighted jurisdiction for this kind of legal decision that makes it a little bit gray as to when does that statute of limitations start? Like, when does that timer start? When does it stop? Whether it's when you first used it or whether it's when you stopped using it, Mm -hmm. if you ever stopped using it. So if you've got something that you put on the internet 12 years ago, but it's still out there, that clock may have not even started running yet. Exactly. And like when the copyright holder should have found it. So there's some gray area on that. This case is like MGM versus something. I can't remember off the top of my head. And so, you know, this three-year timeline, when does it start? If you are continually creating or reproducing something, like say you have a DVD and your first infringement is 2010, but you're continually printing that DVD or copying that DVD, like, yeah, you're obviously still going to be doing acts of infringement. However, if you do it one time in 2013, how can they come back and get you now? And that's been a fight that I've picked a lot because there's gray area. So much gray area. But Caroline says that doesn't stop Pickwrights and its associates from promising everything short of fire and brimstone in the letters they send out. The Pickwrights letter asks for either a couple hundred dollars or like your low couple thousand, just kind of depending. And 
you might get one or two of those. If you don't answer or you tell them to pound sand, you will then start getting letters from Higbean Associates. And Higbean Associates is the law firm that represents them. They're based out of, I believe it's Orange County, California. And they start sending you nastier letters. And there's a lot of legal jargon in there. And I have a lot of strong feelings about the way in which they pursue those claims. I think as lawyers, we try to not be critical of our colleagues unless we feel that it's necessary. And in these cases, I mean, I believe it's completely necessary. I think that they will send you multiple letters. They'll ratchet up the fees. They'll say, oh, you know, if you pay it off, we're not going to go after you for $150,000. And, you know, you try to negotiate with them. A lot of times people will try and take it upon themselves to say like, oh, I didn't know. I took it down. I did that. But that's actually really harmful. Admitting literally anything is going to be super harmful because it can show different things that we don't necessarily want to give away. So you have some poor mom and pop restaurant who used a picture of French fries on their website that was owned apparently by some other company that this firm now represents. And they're admitting to all this stuff. I used it back in 2014. I got it from this website. I did this. I took it down, you know, trying to kind of be honest and upfront. You're giving them basically an admission of guilt. Yeah, you are. So I will often get people coming to me and they'll be like, here's the email chains and here's this. I'm just kind of like, oh God, okay. I wish you wouldn't have said any of that. If you do retain a lawyer, they are supposed to stop contacting you. They can only contact the lawyer. So that can kind of make things stop. It is an ethical violation for them to contact you individually after you have retained a lawyer. I will say I have a client where that did not happen. And we had to tell them this is an ethics violation. If you continue to do that, we're filing bar complaints. I know there have been several bar complaints filed already. I know there have been several lawsuits, but that is one reason to engage an attorney so that they stop bothering you because the letters they send are very forceful and very scary. They'll like cite laws and and cite cases that, I mean, they're being lawyers. They're making it seem like their side should win. They're turning up the pressure on you to settle. Exactly. To pay what seems compared to those big fines and fees to be a pittance. Right. What happens... In the event that you're a small content creator, you're a small fry, and you're stressed out, you're overwhelmed, and eventually you just throw up your hands and say, well, I'm going to ignore this, la, 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 and just don't respond to the letters. If you don't respond to the letters, one of two things is going to happen. The first thing is they're just going to eventually be like, all right, well, this isn't worth it. We're going to leave them alone. That I think typically happens for smaller infringements and cases where they know that there's not potentially a lot of money on the back end. I'm sure that there's some sort of evaluation on their back end about what type of case is this, how much money is potentially going to come out of this, and is it worth it? There's a cost-benefit analysis, as you do with any sort of legal claim. Like I do that with my clients all the time. The other side of this is they could continue to send letters. And another one of the things they do is send copies of complaints. So they'll send you a copy of a lawsuit and say, if you don't pay this, we're going to file this. A lot of times that lawsuit is more of like a form. It's boilerplate. Yeah, it's like everything but the kitchen sink thrown in there. And I think it would be heavily edited if it was going to get filed. But it's really scary to see your name on a lawsuit that's been certified mailed to your door. So that's kind of like one of the last ditch efforts before anyone files a lawsuit. I mean, I've sent those myself and been like, please settle with us because this isn't going to help anybody if we go to court. And then either they leave it alone, they drop it, or they sue you. So essentially, what companies like PickRights and Higby have engaged in on behalf of their clients is a drawn-out, long-distance game of poker. 
These companies are highly secretive about the processes that play out behind the scenes in their decision-making, so we're left to guess. But it stands to reason that, with an automated system to search for alleged violations and send out notices, it basically costs them nothing to bombard people with these letters. Hypothetically, let's be conservative and say that one out of every ten recipients pays a $500 settlement, and they send 100,000 letters in a year. Again, pretty conservative. That's a cool revenue stream of $5 million without so much as having to lift a finger. One can also assume that, when they catch an alleged copyright violation on the blog of a high-profile corporation, the settlement ask is almost certainly much higher, as is the rate of settlement. But after all that bluster, the nasty grams, the threatening letters, is it really worth it for them to take an alleged violator to court? One would think that there's a cost-benefit analysis that plays out. How likely are we to win? How much will it cost us to win? And how much are we likely to win? And according to Caroline, the result of that formula is very seldom a lawsuit. They have sued people. It's just a lower ratio than you would potentially think. All that is to say, and I cannot stress this enough, making sure photographers get paid for their work is a noble cause if it's done right. And it's not even the bot enforcement technology that Caroline takes issue with. I have some crawlers that will go out and search for my client's content that's being actively pirated. But the line that we draw, and this is more of a moral thing than a, a legal thing, but I sit with the clients and I say like, all right, what are the situations that we really want to enforce? You know, if it's a innocent infringement and we know that it is, you know, maybe somebody took one of my photographer who's a really well-known photographer and they take an image of hers and they put on their blog and they talk about how much they love it. Or they say like, this inspired me X, Y, Z. We're not going to go after them. We're not going to demand money. We'll say like, hey, can you either take this down or like link back or make sure you say that you didn't take this or that kind of thing. You have situations where it's obviously very different and people are saying like, oh, I took this image or you'll see a lot of websites or URLs. They try to build up SEO and sell URLs. So they'll take images like well-known images and content and like repost it there for SEO purposes and try to flip the domain. Like that's a situation where we'd be a little like peeved. But I would not be championing this, oh, we're just, we're making sure our photographers are getting paid, but you're also really hurting small businesses and small creators and large creators and large businesses. I mean, not everybody cares about the large ones, but somebody's got to. Well, and it used to be that, as you alluded to, and I think that a lot of people who are in this space do draw a moral distinction there. And certainly the practice has always generally been if you hypothetically got nabbed for using a photo on your blog, you'd get an email from somebody saying, hey, can you link back to us or take that down or pay us? And suddenly now the practice is, hey, take that down and pay us. And especially in the case where you see so many of these things happen inadvertently, I think that that's a bad look. And then I also think that there's an almost monopolistic bent to some of this as well for these big journalistic wire services like Agence France Press, like the Associated Press, to contract with companies that are tasked with wringing money out of indie journalists and bloggers. It's almost like they're muscling out the 
small competition and, and punching down. You know, that's a really interesting perspective on it. And that's not something that I thought about either. Like the indie journalists who maybe aren't going to be able to go get pictures at the front lines in Ukraine and, and take pictures to document what's going on there or, or things like that. And, you know, there are certain exemptions. There are certain fair use arguments to be made, especially if you are a journalist with a news organization, bloggers don't often get as much leeway. I will say that they're not seen as, you know, journalists or, I mean, there's definitely a stark line between journalists and content creators just in the eyes of what's fair use versus not. Should it be there? Probably not. I think it will eventually go away, but I had not really thought about that. And I think that that's a very interesting thought as well. What needs to happen as far as modernizing our copyright statutes? There is a lot of conversation about that because I think there's going to have to be a huge overhaul on that. So I worked at a musician's lobbying group in DC for a while when I was in law school. And a lot of it was like compulsory licensing, paying artists, things like that. And I mean, that's a whole other animal as well. So I don't really know many sectors of the copyright spectrum. Like the big companies aren't doing great. You know, I worked at Sony for a minute too. Like they're not loving the copyright ecosystem. There's reclamations happening. There were some laws passed where, you know, after a certain amount of time, a, a creator can like come back and say like, okay, well, I get a second bite at the apple. I'm taking back my copyright, even though I sold it to you. So, you know, we've got that going on on the large businesses. Small businesses can't afford to enforce their copyrights. The tiny businesses don't even know what's going on because they're just trying to run a French fry shop and not have to deal with getting cease and desist letters. So I really don't know anybody who is thriving here. Musicians get paid pennies on the dollar for any money that gets made from streaming. We may need to just kind of start over. Burn it all down. Start fresh. <sighs> yeah, I mean, I really don't <laughs> know the best way to fix our copyright laws as they are, but there's a lot that needs to be done. As far as these kind of things go, they say that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And certainly a lot of folks right now are sitting there wishing that they had an ounce of prevention right here. But how does one keep from ever running afoul of pick rights? The easiest way is to make your own content. That is the absolute easiest way because you will always know that you own the copyright in it and that there is no way that they can claim that's theirs. The second easiest way is to know the creators of what you're working with, get licenses for it, keep those in writing somewhere. In writing can be by email, it can be e-sign, that kind of thing. The next thing you can do, kind of like the next step up would be use a licensing service so the best known one is Getty, like Getty Images. You pay a certain price, you get the images, you can use them. The only bad thing about that is a lot of those services, as soon as you stop paying the licensing fees, your license gets revoked. And then they can go after you and they can say, oh, not only do you, we think you infringed, but you had a license and then you stopped paying for it. So this is willful infringement. And then you have that whole shenanigans. There are some websites that purport to have royalty-free license. You know, you don't need a license images. If you are online and you see things about like Creative Commons, A, make sure that they're actually original and that they're not just pulling it from somewhere else and saying like, oh, it's free, it's fine, because I've had that happen to somebody. Or make sure you understand Creative Commons licensing. It's not just, oh, it's Creative Commons and like everybody gets to use it however they want. There are licenses that go along with it. You have just your plain old flat Creative Commons. You can use it however. There's Creative with attribution. There's with you know no editing, things like that. So make sure you actually understand what those mean before you grab one of those and use it. 
what if you are someone who has been a content creator for a very, very long time and know that you probably violated copyright repeatedly when you were a blogger in 2008 because that was what everyone did back then. Even if that blog is pulled down, there are snapshots of the internet from 2008 that can serve as evidence that this thing happened. Are you just damned if you do, damned if you don't at this point? I mean, is it a matter of going back through and auditing content that you wrote more than 10 years ago, or is that an exercise in futility at this point? In a best case scenario, yeah, you would go back and audit it and you would say, wow, all these images and all this back content that I have from 10, 15, however long it's been, yanking pictures down and making sure that they're not still active on your website. It'll be a little bit harder for crawlers to find things like files that aren't saved in your web structure. They won't be able to find those they'll only be available on the Wayback Machine or on whatever Internet Archive you're, you're on. I mean, I hate saying like, oh, yeah, well, we're all screwed. But there's the ability if for them to go back and find stuff. Like if it's not deleted off your server, there's potentially the ability for these little crawlies to go through and find it. I also have someone who I have worked with. We didn't end up doing anything about it. And it ended up going away. And she again, authorized me to say stuff about this, but there was stuff that she like swears was never on her server because she keeps her own server. She's very tech savvy. And she was like, they're saying that I have these images. I've never posted this. This is not even what my blog is about, but they're saying, here's my URL and here's this image and blah, blah, blah. And so I have no idea how that happened or what happened there, but I would say just be very, very careful and go through and see what's there so that you know what's there. And then hide under your table and hope for the best. It's wild because clearly this is a profitable endeavor for the companies that are carrying it out. And so one could imagine that like with drilling oil, you drill and you drill until you run out of oil and then you drill a little bit deeper. And the Internet's a big place. I certainly don't think that they're in danger of running out of copyright violators anytime soon. But one can also fathom a future in which they decide, yeah, why don't we go scrape the Internet Wayback Machine and see what's out there? Yeah. And, you know, the positive here and the the thing that we can wait for and look towards is, okay, we need to get a case where we do get a really good statute of limitations ruling where they say like, oh, okay, like they clarify that because right now the way that ruling went, it's like, is it what they're saying? I mean, in my opinion, I think it's very clear that that's not the case. But you know, you can argue gray until you're red in the face. So that would be the thing that we're waiting on to really clarify whether they can go back to 2008 and say like, okay, well, it's still there. So you owe us this money, which in any other case with a statute of limitations, like there's a reason that a statute of limitations exists. So I think it's a matter of time until we get that. You know what I really hate about it? As someone who was a creator in the internet back in, I'm going to start calling them the golden days to really show my years. But the thing that I loved about the internet back then is that it was this melting pot of collaboration. It was this space in which you were free to be creative. And I think the end result of this new stringent bot backed enforcement that we're seeing now is that People are going to be scared to create. People are going to be scared of the stuff that they did create, and they're going to take it down and delete it forever. And the end result is an internet that is duller and more boring. I think it's going to scare people away from wanting to create anything at all, and the fewer creators there will be. 
the whole reason we have these laws in place is to promote the arts and to promote expression and things like that and to reward creators. And what they're doing right now seems like the opposite. And so that's where it gets frustrating. It seems like it is doing the absolute worst thing it can do, which is like strangling your creators and your creative people. And it is very frustrating as somebody who sees it happening and can see why it's needed, but why it also is being exploited in many ways, shapes and forms by many different types on both ends of the spectrum. Because I also have clients who are trying to enforce things and we can't get stuff taken down. And it's very clearly they're reselling content and reselling videos or courses or things like that that we can't even get to. So you see it on both ends and it's extremely frustrating. Dear Nicholas Schwab, the Belgium-based marketing technologist and agency owner that we talked to earlier in the program, does not share my bleak assessment of the future of the internet. What I observe is quite the contrary. I mean, the velocity, the dynamics behind content creation is way more than what it was 10 years ago. Why? Because there are not only blogs anymore, so you have podcasts like we do today, we have YouTube, TikToks, and all the likes where the amount of content and of original interesting content is created. It's just amazing that something that could not have happened 15 years ago. And the very definition, the nature of creation, of innovation is still the same. It's remixing things together. It's just the velocity, how it happens, that has increased so much compared to 20 years ago. So I would respectfully disagree with your statement. I like your sense of optimism, but do you foresee a world in the future where copyright is enforced on an even grander scale on platforms like TikTok, on platforms like YouTube, where this same technology can be be used to pursue people who are remixing video content on those platforms? Well, I don't know whether it will be used to pursue people, but YouTube is already using it with music. So as soon as you have a um, music in your a video that is copyrighted, it will just stop the, the publishing process. So that technology is already in place. It's just the way you leverage that technology that changes. So you have the white way to do it, according to me. It's like as YouTube does it, where it prevents you from doing an error and you have other way to leverage the technology where they go after you trying to get you money and make you pay for the mistakes that you did most of the time not on purpose so well that's not the right thing to do from belgium dr pierre nicholas schwab marketer technologist business consultant and founder of into the minds thank you for joining us on the let balloon podcast thank you for having me Thanks once again to Pierre Nicholas, as well as Caroline Fox, principal attorney at CJ Fox Law in Richmond, Virginia. As I mentioned, they've both authored some pretty fire blogs on this topic, which I will link to in the episode description. And they both reiterated the advice that anyone who posts on the internet or ever has posted on the internet, blog, website, work project, social media, whatever, you should maybe consider an audit of what you've got out there to make sure that you own the rights to all of it because it seems like this practice is only going to get more prevalent. Now, if you have gotten one of these claim letters, I'm really sorry that you're going through that. It sucks. I feel you. May the odds be ever in your favor. I will note here that I reached out to the respected newswire Agence France Presse to invite them to comment on their association with these so-called copyright trolling operations, and AFP declined to provide a response. The alleged copyright claim against me remains ongoing. 
I'm not going quietly. I think I have a good case and my lawyer does too. And I'm glad that I got to use my unpleasant situation to hopefully inform a whole lot more people about this trend. But I will just note here that I will not be providing any further updates about my case in this feed, lest anybody decide that they would like to make a public example of my well-meaning small business operation. If it happens, I won't be giving it publicity. If you know someone who needs to hear this story, though, please do send them a link to the episode. I'm sure that the copyright trolls who make millions would agree that more people need to know about this. And subscribe to Lead Balloon in your favorite podcast app for more important tales from the world of strategic communication. A five-star review is always appreciated as well. You may note that the art for this episode is kind of neat. An artificial intelligence generated that, so that ought to be clear of any copyright issues. Oh, if Caroline were still on the line, I bet she would laugh her head off over that because, of course, there are going to be legal proceedings in the future about how AIs ingest copyrighted imagery to train themselves to make art. Should be an interesting show topic when it happens. Check out the link in the episode description to see some of the other wacky art that the AIs generated when I told them to draw me some evil copyright-enforcing robots. It's dynamite. Lead Balloon is produced by PodCamp Media, where we provide branded podcast production services for businesses. Our podcast studios are located in the heart of beautiful downtown Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but we work with brands all over North America, podcampmedia.com. Music by Neon Beach, Pala, Oboy, and Falls, and licensed through Soundstripe. Larry Kilgore III handled dialogue editing on this episode. And until the next time, folks, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss. Thank you.